Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We're one poem into lyrical ballads, and by God, is it a wild one. We're reading through and contemplating Coleridge's Rime of the Ancient Mariner, one of the weirder gothic poems in the English language and one hell of a way to start a poetic project. Why would a mariner shoot an albatross with a crossbow? Why would a mariner even have a crossbow? We try to get to the bottom of these mysteries as we begin dipping our toes into this watershed volume of romantic poetry. The Cannonball is part of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out some of the other shows in the network like Ben Jacobs' From Wittenberg to Westphalia, a full exploration of the Protestant Reformation. Ben examines all of the nitty-gritty details of the history, theology, politics, and even the civic planning that went into the transformation of Europe from Catholic dominance to, well, whatever it was that came after. If you're online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook at The Cannonball Podcast. And on Twitter at CannonballPod. And if you or a kid in your life need English tutoring, SAT tutoring, or college essay help, drop me a line at claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. I could really use the money. Thanks a lot. Oh, and be sure to rate and review on iTunes or wherever you get this podcast. Thank you. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the works in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer, and with me as always is Daniel Doherty. Daniel, how are you doing tonight? Hey, hey, I'm I'm good. We were uh, we were talking a little bit before we started recording. Uh, you know, there I'm I'm undergoing the psychic turmoil of potty training a toddler. Uh, which you know, you know, you've you've been through. Oh, Lord. you're about to be going through it again. You, you got your second one. Yeah, in the process. Yeah, the, the two and a half year old wants to be like the older kids, so he goes up to the potty yeah. and says, "I need to go pee," and then pushes it up and stands and sort of like leans over. Like you know how um how how you see like drunk dudes at the bar sort of like with their <laughs> yeah. hand hanging on this, on the thing is there sort of right. like maybe contemplating throwing up in the next 30 seconds that's how he sort of looks as he's leaning on the potty and he's making his best effort but daniel he's not pulling his pants down <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, There's, so that's been my potty training but what's yours been? well it's not to get not to get too much into it I, I i i don't want to you know inflict this on all of our listeners but just as a kind of window into my own uh madness you know w- right now uh it's um i think you're, you're right on the money there though like the one thing i didn't anticipate and this is this is my first and we're you know we're going through the potty training experience one thing i didn't anticipate is just how many you know dots there are to connect in the process. And I was realized, I realized that like, you know, no one's born knowing how or why they ought to go in the, in the toilet, in the commode, you know, in the, in the, in the fixture. 
and, and you know something like I, I realized I've had to kind of like, I've kind of had to rebuild my own rationale for it from first principles, you know, <laughs> engaging in this project in order to, you know, convince myself that this is worth going through. Um, but no, 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 she's, she's, she's terrific and she's, she's picking it up. Uh, we just, we just decided to go with a kind of like full bore approach that, um, uh-huh. neither my wife nor I were fully aware of the uh, ramifications, but you know what, that that's the same thing of like having a child to begin with. So, you yeah, know. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, God, well, speaking of horrors and, um, terrors in the soul, let's, Turn to Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and in case you're sort of picking up in the middle of what we've been up to, uh, Daniel and I decided to take on uh, the the first edition of Lyrical Ballads in pieces. We're going to start by by taking a sort of brief look at Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, and, and it might be a little bit of a shorter episode, and then we're going to do something that'll probably be a little bit of a shorter episode um, in the coming weeks on several of the poems uh, sort of following Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. We're going to do another one on some of the poems following those poems and sort of take a look at the narrative poems and things like that. And then we'll conclude with um, an episode on Tintern Abbey. And I think Tintern Abbey sort of deserves its own close read as Ancient Mariner deserves its own close read because these are – how do I put this? They're the bookends to the first edition of, of lyrical ballads. And, and they're there for a reason, though that reason might be somewhat inscrutable at the moment because everything, the, the ordering gets scrambled in the second edition. And, you know, starting off with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it really is a challenge. Like this mm-hmm. really is a challenging poem. It's a challenging poem now. It's a dense symbolic artifact. And I can't imagine what it would have looked like to someone sort of cracking this open, you know, in, in the 1790s for the first time. Well, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> but, the the more I was getting into it this time around, the more that I saw how it does have certain kinds of correspondences with Tintern Abbey. Uh, weird as that sounds, yeah. and and that's why I think maybe we can come back to Tintern Abbey on its own, sort of in a, in a couple of weeks' time. Cool. So, uh, Daniel, was this your first time with with the Ancient Mariner? It it was well, it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I. This was among the poetry that was in the Norton anthology that I read for, you know, I think it must have been 11th grade, uh, English literature. Um, I have been, you know, it's kind of, well, it's one of those, it's one of those poems that has a, a fairly rich afterlife in popular culture in that, you know, you have expressions like albatross around your neck, uh, is, you know, is, is very common. Uh, and in fact, you, Claude, you reminded me in the chat of that, uh, Monty Python bit with, uh, live at the oh, Hollywood yeah. Bowl, where it's John Cleese, uh, going around the neighborhood or uh, around the, the audience with like, you know, like a, uh, like a peanuts guy at the ball game, but with an albatross, you know, around his neck. Yeah. He's, uh, they have an interlude in the middle of the live performance and John Cleese comes out in the back of the, the house wearing a dress and selling seagull sickles <laughs> and an albatross. Right. So it's, it's this really bizarre riff on the ancient mariner and it's, it's worth checking out just for the absurdity. Yeah. Yeah, but, but anyway, um, please go ahead. Yeah, but I uh, I did not know until we embarked on our lyrical ballads project that the version I was reading was a, an edited version from decades after its first yeah. appearance. So this was my first time with the 1798 version, which I discovered I really uh, it. I don't know if I'm you know I, I, in a lot of ways I'm a much more mature reader. I'm much more open to poetry, but at the same time, like I, it really kind of struck me a lot harder because it's a lot weirder um yeah a lot more and i guess we'll get into talking about it, but a lot more deliberately archaizing in its spellings yeah. and the language that it chooses to use um but uh but i will say that i didn't really i didn't retain anything from my first reading beyond <laughs> the most superficial <laughs> recollection of like uh yeah you know a guy shoots a bird everyone gets mad at him you know i forget how it ends <laughs> but right so this was a very uh this was a very strange thing to step into. Uh, I really, it was very affecting. Yeah. 
It it was weird for me because <clears throat> I think I've mentioned this before. Like for some reason, my dad had bits of Chaucer still memorized, mm. and and my dad, you know, he, he went to college and he was an educated dude, but he wasn't exactly, you know, steeped in in the literary. Except he kind of was because I I, I think the humanities were sort of pumped into them mm-hmm. a little bit more yeah. forcefully yeah. back in the sixties. Uh, but he also had bits and pieces of the Ancient Mariner, and he. I remember the first time, you know, the first time I encountered this was him telling me about it on one of the weird walks we had with my dog. <laughs> uh, it, it was just, he said, I don't know. I just remember this weird thing about him shooting a bird. And then he told me the whole story of the ancient mariner. So it would, I don't know. It was just this strange sort of connection with my dad. But um, yeah, this is one that I, I sort of explored both versions of mm-hmm. uh, back in undergrad. And as a bestial 19 year old, it really was in one eye and out the other. And then later on in grad school and then afterwards, you know, exploring this uh, and, and sort of knowing more about Coleridge, how he wound up, what his interests were and are, or, well, he's dead now. Um, it, it sort of makes some sense and I can fit it into some things, but it is a goddamn weird poem. Yeah. And, and I, 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 I I keep saying that, but I, I really want to um, reemphasize just how strange this is. I mean, when something becomes so much a part of popular culture or, or so much a part of culture, it's it's easy to forget just how, well, in Bloom's own words, uncanny the the original work is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yeah, and we sort of talked about this with, with Don Quixote, but yeah, please, I don't mean to step on. Oh no, I, I was just going to say that uncanny is like that's. I mean, that's such a vague term to use, but yeah. uh, I think that's this is absolutely an, one of the best applications of it I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense, and it makes no sense at all. Uh, but anyway, so, you know, I, the, I, I'm surprised you didn't mention this one, the, the, the Simpsons <clears throat> where they're out in the life raft stranded at yes. sea and Homer has the line, <laughs> water, water everywhere. Why not have a drink? Yes. Yeah, it, it's, it's somewhat <laughs> ubiquitous, but the, the actual poem is really far out. So, all right, before we go much further with this, uh, you, <laughs> In our discussion ahead of time, you volunteered to give us a summary. Yes. And uh, let's – okay. I, I will fill in as I can. But again, this this is a, a strange one. So let's let's take it away. I'm going to give it a shot. And Claude, I just want you to know uh, I, I, I take no offense if you feel the need to uh, jump in <laughs> and, and, and write the ship as it were, yeah. to use some nautical uh, terminology there. So the rhyme of the ancient mariner. Uh, well, I, oh. I think we may be careening to some more <laughs> nautical terminology. Well, anyway, let's, right. let's, uh, let's uh, set sail. So, anyway, okay. um, so the rhyme of the ancient mariner kicks off with a kind of framing device where yeah. we are following uh, a trio of young men who are on their way to, they're part of a wedding party. And they're on their way to join the festivities when uh, they are detained by a an ancient, you know, kind of shrunken up man who proceeds to kind of you know glare at them until they agree to sit and listen, basically, because he has like a just one of them. Just one. Just oh, that's one. right. Yeah. The, yeah, the other, yeah. One, the others kind of continue on to the wedding party. That's right. And it's one of them who stays behind. Uh, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Stare yeah, it, well, he's kind of—he's sort of. It was well, a little bit of the evil eye, right? It, it mentions like his stare, his, his his you know something about his eyes, you know, compels him to to sit and listen. And the mariner starts telling him about this uh, voyage he went on, which began here in this own native harbor, which I'm taking to be you know Plymouth or some other kind of uh, Devon uh, seaport there in the West Country. So. Um, I, I won't be doing my Devonshire accent, but uh, if you've ever if you've ever heard pirate speak, that's the Devonshire accent. Um, <laughs> but the mariner uh, proceeds to tell the tale about how he was on board a you know a merchant vessel, presumably it's it's not a military ship that was uh, on its way south. It was going to cross the equator. It's uh, it's it's heading south, presumably to round you know either the Cape Horn or Cape of Good Hope, but it's heading into the South Atlantic. Um, you know, things are going well, uh, nice, you know, nice weather. They're making good time until they get kind of stuck in this weird morass, almost maze of icebergs and, and fog that 
kind of brings them to a standstill until an albatross is spotted kind of circling over. He's, you know, there's this albatross, the, the, the very large seabird. It's like a giant seagull. This albatross is spotted kind of flying above them. It stays with the ship and the weather improves. Like they actually are able to kind of make their way through this, this maze. Um, and it's, you know, it's a great, you know, great blessing. Everyone's very happy about it. And the Mariner for reasons I don't think are ever really, um, addressed in the poem, uh, decides he's going to load up his crossbow, a strangely archaic weapon for, you know, a ship presumably in the 18th century and just shoot this bird out of the sky. So the albatross falls dead on the deck <laughs> and they, uh, the, the ship is uh, almost immediately becalmed. Uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the winds that were driving them, uh, you know, give up the, oh wait, no, I'm sorry. I think, well, initially everyone's happy about it though, because they thought the albatross brought the fog and ice with it. It was the, it was the bringer of the ice and fog. The mariner shoots it down. Um, it's treated very, just matter of factly. It's like two lines in the poem. He's like, yeah, I brought out my crossbow and shot it down. Um, but it turns out, of course, the albatross was leading them out of this maze, this, uh, this ice bound prison. So, once everyone realizes that, all the other sailors are then furious at this mariner. Um, uh, they are right. The winds die down. They're becalmed. The, the ocean s- starts transforming, uh, uncannily, uh, into this kind of, you know, rolling, slimy, uh, sea that's, you know, no one's going anywhere. There, there's rotting, slimy creatures crawling around. It becomes a nightmare scape. There's, uh, there's weird glowing lights. Um, some of the sailors dream that there's, uh, that there's some spirit in the deep, deep ocean that has been, you know, dragging them or, or is somehow affecting all this. But they're, the long and short of it is they're just, they're stuck, right? They're, they're absolutely trapped. So of course you're running out of supplies. You're running out of fresh water. There's no rain falling. They can't capture any rain. They can't make it to a port. And they're so parched that they can't even speak. But the Mariner, uh, at one point, you know, he's lying, <laughs> they're all lying almost dead on the deck. The Mariner spots a, uh, a speck on the horizon. He, he seems to, he sees it as a, as a ship. It's moving toward him. He's so dry mouth that he has to bite into his cheek to get blood into his mouth to wet his tongue enough. His arm, his arm. Oh, his arm. I'm sorry. Yeah, he bit, like he he bit his, bites his Oh, he bites into his arm. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sucks so the blood out. he sucks his own right. blood. He sucks his own blood vampirically to, uh, to get enough blood to moisten his lips to cry out, there's a sail, a sail. And everyone thinks that they're going to be saved. But of course, you know, this being the ancient mariner, it's this weird ghost ship with these allegorical spirit figures visible on it. Um I think it was two figures. They're playing dice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's death playing dice. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and the this and uh, in, in some in some capacity, I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the details called, but in some capacity, <laughs> these these two figures cause all kinds of uh, like cosmic and astrological uh, uh, miracles or omens to happen. There's like you know the sun sinks, stars emerge. Uh, you know, uh, all kinds of mysterious sky stuff happening and the sailors all drop dead except for the Mariner. Exactly. Um, these, uh, the souls of these dead men like leap out, you know, and are, and are, it's, he's, he's, he's terrified. Um, the, all this time, of course, <laughs> this is all being related to this poor young man who just wanted to go, <laughs> just wanted to go get drunk and joke around with his buddies about their friend getting married. Um, but the, but the, uh, the, 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 the Mariner reassures this, uh, this, uh, this young man that no, I'm not a ghost. I'm alive. I lived. <laughs> and, but, uh, so, but he's there alone on the ship, um, surrounded by all these corpses. There was, uh, really one of my favorite lines, uh, in the poem. And one of them that I'm, uh, uh, I think was vastly better in the, in the 1798 poem, but it says here, uh, the many men so beautiful, and they all dead did lie, and a million million slimy things lived on, and so did I. 
just a, a beautiful piece of poetry right there. I loved it. Oh yeah. It's, it's that, that, and so did I. And so did I. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, I am a slimy, <laughs> rotten creature just like these. Um, he, he attempts to kind of, he basically he tries to pray for death. Um, but, uh, is, is unable to, he's just laying there, just trying to die, uh, try as he might. But it's, it's, uh, at some point, uh, the moon, the moon rises. We have some more, you know, astronomical, uh, effects. The, it, it casts some bizarre shadows and he starts seeing sea monsters kind of moving in these, these shadows and the casting weird light. And these, he, he's struck by their beauty. You know, it, he's, he's struck by, uh, just the, I don't know quite, but he's, 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 and he, he blesses them. And it's in that moment that he's then able to pray. He's able to pray. And the, oh, I forgot to mention, he, he had the, well, the albatross around his neck. The, the other sailors had chained the corpse of the albatross around his neck as a kind of, uh, you know, scarlet letter, a scarlet A, really, yeah. for albatross. <laughs> um, and that falls off of his neck. It falls into the sea and, and plummets down into the depths. And the, the mariner lives to tell his tale to this uh terrified young man um yeah i think so it starts to rain he gets some water from that yeah the dead bodies stand up and yeah 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 i think um the disney film pirates of the caribbean really (laughs) captured this when it goes by yeah yeah but they they stand up and run the the rigging and and sail him on home uh he has the briefest of encounters with these spiritual voices that come to him that narrate everything that he did. And then he gets just in sight of shore and the ship wrecks. Yes. And he's saved at the last minute by um, the hermit and basically uh, this guy who works the harbor um, to, to go salvage people from the wrecks. Uh, there's this hermit from the wood who blesses him, <clears throat> who's this kind of, I guess, holy figure. And then he's rowed back to shore and now he's, he's compelled. He has this supernatural compulsion or possibly a psychological compulsion or perhaps both mm-hmm. to stop people he sees who he feels um, in some way, shape or form are receptive to his message. Mm-hmm. He holds them with his vampiric eye and he has to relate this tale. That's right. It is vampiric, vampiric eye. They actually, that's right. Use the term vampiric. Yeah. I forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, he, uh, he, he stops and, um, has to hold them with his vampiric eye. He has to relate the tale and he leaves whoever it is to whom he has related the tale, um, sadder and wiser. The end. <laughs> what a, hey, and you know, what a, what a way to introduce <laughs> yourself to the world of letters, right? Exactly. I mean, and, and then nothing else, like, all right, that's the, the thing. It's such a bizarre symbolist performance. I mean, we were talking about this when we were doing Faust Mm -hmm. that, you know, a a lot of my frustration was with the fact that I had to read it in in translation. My German is terrible. Uh, And so you're sort of trying to parse the language and parse the symbolism at the same time because it is so densely symbolic. And Coleridge does all of that in English, a language I can read kind of. And <laughs> it's, it's no less requiring of unpacking. It's such a torturous uh, text. Um, and it's so brief. I mean, it really isn't that long and it goes by so swiftly partially, I mean, partly due to the ballad form. I mean, this is, this is a ballad. And he really utilizes the ballad to get you right in. Yeah. Like, Boom! Right from the start, it really and is. You can use like it to the, for that narrative thrust. Yeah, the 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 rhythm of it is. Uh, I mean, it, it 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 drives, and it's and it's in very kind of compact 
uh, units, right? Like, I mean, each, each stanza yeah. is like four lines with this very driving rhythm and you just go from one to the other. And it's very easy to, I, I found myself when I was reading it, like, it's very easy to just kind of like get caught up in that and just read, read, and then think to yourself like, well, wait a minute, what the hell did I just read? <laughs> yeah, like I have to go back and like, actually parse what the semantic content was. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really wild. And I think the, the, the stanza form, I mean, again, I, I don't want to harp on this too much, but I think that, that, that particular um, poetic form really does do a lot of the work of making it, uh, 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 of giving it this kind of mystique because you're, you're sort of pushed forward further and further and faster and faster. You don't have time to sort of pause and suss out, wait a minute, who's doing what with the what now? Yeah. And yeah. And so, you're just, yeah. Okay. So the, the zombie sailors just get up and run the ropes <laughs> and then, yeah, there's some water and he drinks it and it's all, yeah, whatever. I, I don't know. And it just kind of pushes you into that. Um, but this is unlike anything else that comes immediately after it. This is unlike anything else in lyrical ballads. Yeah. I mean, th- this is Coleridge really fully embracing the goth. I mean, really just throwing it down. Yeah. Which is not to say that there aren't kind of gothic sort of elements here and there creeping around the edges, either in lyrical ballads or in the stuff that kind of led up to ly- lyrical ballads. Mm-hmm. But I, there's nothing around there. At least in lyrical ballads, that's this overtly supernaturally weird, right? So my, my first question, and, and this was sort of my first note is, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, all right. That's, that's kind of a stupid question, but I, I was at this crux and, and I, I sort of talked to a friend of mine about this. Is this a pastiche? Mm-hmm. Or is this really working in a kind of folk tradition? That okay. would, yeah, because I was wondering with this, is there some kind of like, is, is there a, a corpus of like grizzled old like sea shanty epic that this is drawing from or I is it sweet generous? I mean, <laughs> more, more the, yeah. <laughs> All right. So the ballad – I guess traditionally had been used as a kind of folk narrative tool. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if you sort of go to its, I guess, 17th and earlier 18th century use, it's sort of, it's got this folk element to it. And I, I think we talked about that a little bit last time that just by making a ballad, you're making this kind of political and social statement. Uh, but it's also used for narrative. Um, so the Ballad of Sir Patrick Spence, right? Um, that, if I remember correctly, is one about a drowned sailor. Uh, so maybe there is this seafaring element to the ballad. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm being jokey and, and goofy. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure there's not a seafaring, you know, necessarily a seafaring tradition. But, um, the, the question is, like, is he drawing on an actual sort of folk, not exactly a mythos, but folk beliefs or, 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 how do I put this? A folk framework in order to tell the story of what I would, what I'm reading as a kind of romantic redemption arc. Yeah. Um, but it could also, like, in that case, the archaic words may not be necessarily archaic, but reflective of the spoken language at the time, right? Yeah. So is this him trying to capture an accent? Uh, sort of like how uh, Burns wrote in Scots, yeah, right, which isn't an accent, right? Right, it's a it's a, um, it's a dialect of with a common ancestor to English as we know it, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Burns wrote ballads in Scots as a kind of representation of, I guess, local authenticity. Is this Coleridge trying to capture some kind of local authenticity, or is this him? Inventing slash developing something that sounds like an archaic authenticity mm-hmm. or, or archaic local authenticity in the manner that someone like Spencer did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Spencer yeah, and the Fairy Queen very kind clean, of, right. yeah, he, he sort of invented this mock, 
Middle English, or like uh, um, or sort of invented or, all these, words. or like how Cervantes did with uh, with Don Quixote, exactly. like how Don Quixote yeah. was basically speaking in this pastiche of the the romantic, you know, or the romances that he was so obsessed yeah. with. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So I, I actually asked a friend of mine who is an expert in this, and she said, flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm being like really silly. No, what, what she said is that there are arguments both ways, mm-hmm. but the, um, the context for the placement would suggest that what he's aiming for in this instance is something like trying to capture a folk tradition, right? Yeah. Because everything else in the lyrical ballads is trying to do that. Right. It's sort of like, this is rural life. This is rustic life. These are folk traditions. This is what, um, non Londoners believe or non quote unquote sophisticated people believe. So it seems most likely that it's not exactly that kind of Spencerian creation of, you know, neologistic archaism. Yeah. It's him trying to approximate certain kinds of folk beliefs. Mm-hmm. And then infuse them with his own sort of symbolic constructs. Uh, but it's weird. It, having said that, it really is tough to read because you are sort of stopped here and there by these weird words that, you know, if, if you've got a glossary or a well edited edition of the lyrical ballads, you can say, Oh, okay. I see what this means. I see what he's doing. I see how this fits together. But I wonder what this would have been like, you know, as a first read. Again, this is a hell of a shot across the bow. Yeah. Yeah. You know? All right, so that's just the language in the form itself. <laughs> but what the hell does this thing mean? Yeah. Um, all right, so the the first thing that I think we can address is something that you pointed out. They don't, or, or Coleridge doesn't say why he shot the albatross. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> We can we can presume that the shooting of the albatross is the the sort of I guess sin of the piece, the thing that sort of sets the mariner apart, alienates him from everyone else, and sets the whole thing off on disaster. Um so why did he do it? Uh Daniel, any guesses? Well, so considering the wholeness of the poem. And considering wrong, there's no reason. <laughs> Damn it. Um, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on, because I, my reason is that there is no reason also because considering yeah. the wholeness of the poem and that it's, you know, a very theologically steeped, a very, a very obsessed with death and, 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 uh, redemption, right? It's yeah. clearly a very Christian poem that i would think it is it is simply in the nature of man to fuck it up right it's the original it's original sin it's the pervasive well it's like what's the what's the calvinist conception of um like pervasive corruption there's 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 nothing anyone could do that won't be fucked up somehow because you're not actually connected to god yet (laughs) yeah yeah i i mean you know pinchon reinvents that as inherent vice sure Um, sure it's it's kind of like the running theme in that novel. But, um, 
it's it's really funny but uh yeah that's exactly it like this is him taking on original sin i mean yeah we sort of talked about this a few halloweens ago with christabel yeah which was yeah him doing much the same thing trying to think through all right why is it that we do awful things or why is evil in this world uh this is him doing much the same it's it's you know in in freudian terms it's perversion Mm -hmm. why do we do things that are against our own interest why do we do destructive things for no reason and that's that's exactly what this is is a destructive act for no reason uh you can't interpret the bird and and Mm -hmm. i think he makes a, a a good point of showing that the other sailors can't interpret the bird uh, was shooting it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Mm-hmm. At first, everybody says, yay. Then everybody says, boo. Um, there's no real way to fully comprehend what the bird means, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it seems to, you know, later on, the spirits say, well, this was the bird that was a friend to the spirit of the ice, which sailed everything through. But in the moment, all they know is that it's following along and they're having fun throwing biscuits at it. Well, to it, mm-hmm. excuse me. They're not trying to assault. <laughs> throw it no, they're throwing food to it. Yeah, like you feed the ducks. Yeah. yeah, and and that's fine. It seems benevolent or benign, and for no reason whatsoever, the mariner decides to destroy it. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, it, it's almost like a, a kid squashing an earthworm or something like that, or a kid squashing an ant. Well, it's a bit like. I mean, speaking right. of Freud, it's a bit like um, you know the the Thanatos drive. You know, like yeah, in, yeah. in civilization and its discontents, you know, the, the, the tension between Eros and Thanatos, like, you know, just sort of thoughtless yeah. destruction. Yeah. I mean, that that's exactly it. There's no thought behind it. There's no motivation whatsoever. There's just destruction. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, that's really the crux of this. And that's going back through this and thinking through this again, that's where I think the form really works with the subject matter because <laughs> you don't have time to stop and think, well, why do you do that? You're just boom, you're on. Yeah. Right. So that, that's sort of like this, this kind of central mystery that I think isn't really that much of a mystery if you stop and unpack it a little bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think you did. Now, the further question is why is he stopping the people that he stops? And there's this real conundrum here. All right. So, what he produces, I, I keep thinking about this in terms of Paradise Lost. What what hmm. happens is, you know, the the original sin, that destructive impulse, it symbolically alienates the the ancient mariner. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, symbolically and literally, everyone dies around him. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but he's he's isolated and alone, and he is the one thing that cannot die. All right. Now, this is going to get into a whole weird area, but one of the things that we talked about when we were talking about Milton with Paradise Lost was this way that sin is that that isolating thing. Um, thinking of yourself as this sort of like individual isolated being uh, is what leads you into sinfulness uh-huh. right self-awareness self-consciousness uh meaning having an individual consciousness is the first step towards damnation yeah. in in paradise lost and that seems to be what's going on both here and in turn abbey um <laughs> conversation for another day <laughs> yes one of the things that you know, was troubling or, or always troubled me about Milton is like, well, motherfucker, what did you want? Right. <laughs> what, we, we were talking about that, that kind of like Buddhist aspect of him of, you know, sort of oneness with the universe and this embrace of, um, thoughtlessness, not in a pejorative sense, as in I'm doing a thoughtless act like murdering the albatross, but thoughtlessness in this kind of unawareness of the self differentiated from the whole of the universe so that the individual self is submerged into the universe itself. Yeah. Right. Okay. Is this making any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm 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 on board. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, one of the problems with that is when 
can you really truly become a thoughtless being reintegrated into the environment itself? Well, when you're dead. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and that, that takes not. care of it. And you're very literally reintegrated <laughs> yeah. into the environment. You're fine. Like that's, you know, yeah, you, you did it. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the, that's going to be this kind of like tension that I think is lurking underneath a lot of this stuff. And that's a weird kind of tension that's sort of lurking underneath ancient Mariner that has a lot to do with this weird sort of, I don't know, it seems to me an unresolvable paradox, Mm -hmm. right? What is the compulsion? Why is the compulsion? What is the aim of the compulsion? Yeah. All right. So, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I no, 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 no. I, I was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That, that was a uh, okay. yeah. Keep lead me on forward. <laughs> All right. So this is me trying to do the math in real time. Right. All right. He <laughs> he disrupts a wedding ceremony, which symbolically can be read as, or has symbolically been read as, um, sort of generations coming together. Humans reunifying. Uh, let's celebrate the 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 coming together of this generation and the production of the next generation. Mm-hmm. It's it's a socializing festival, right? Yeah. Uh, for the creation of society, literally, <laughs> right? So he stops someone heading into that festival, that socializing festival, to strike them with a tail that will lead them to a moment of self-awareness and self-consciousness that will leave them shocked and isolated Mm -hmm. from the socializing situation in a literal sense, because he's stopping this dude from going and having a good time and getting going to the wedding. (laughs) Right. But in this figurative sense, because he says, you know, tomorrow you'll wake up, um, you know, sadder and wiser. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So is the ancient mariner compelled to reintroduce the sin of isolation? Is he compelled to perform his alienating act by alienating others? Is this a benevolent curse or is this him cursing others with his new knowledge? Well, okay, so, so here's one for you. Okay. No, this is in in no way saying this was intentional on the part of the author. This is just me spitballing whatever. I think what we have here is the mariner is, I don't know if there's already a term for this in Buddhism, but it sounds like he's an anti-bodhisattva. Right? (laughs) Okay. He is, of course, the bodhisattva is this concept in Buddhism where that's someone who has come close to attaining the enlightenment, the same enlightenment that Gautama Buddha did, but holds back from crossing that threshold so that they can remain an independent, you know, ego identity that can aid others in that path, in, in, in getting closer to that path, right? They purposefully hold themselves back from full enlightenment to help others get there. Yeah. The Mariner, <laughs> the Mariner is here keeping people from getting any nearer to Nirvana and the dissolution of self in, in whatever's going on around them, right? He's, he's there to inflict alienation on people. That is his spiritual task. <laughs> So, <laughs> but, but is that for the sake of creating another bodhisattva? I mean, is is this like a kind of shock doctrine right. sort of thing? Is I mean, it's, like, it's, it's, and, he, and it, well, it does say that he's not. You know, he's he's picky about it, right? It's yeah. not everyone. It's not that like he's inflicting this on every all and sundry. It's not like he's inflicting this on anyone he he can, right? He's not inflicting yeah. it on anyone who happens to cross his path or is unlucky enough. It's people who he can see in has something in them that requires this will respond yeah so maybe yeah. so like maybe it is a matter of like in order for the kind of broader spiritual health of everybody someone has to be the the sin eater almost yeah 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 it's i mean it's it's so weird i mean it gets it gets into this whole weird goth territory yeah. um <laughs> no i mean it, it it literally gets kind of snl we're, we're like very the, the sort of yeah we're very haunted by the gothic on this show I've realized. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm right. 
I, I, I was kind of a, a goth kid before there was such a term before it sort of reified yeah, into, yeah. you know, the look into the, um, your hot topic ism. Yeah. We didn't have a hot topic. Yeah. All right. Anyway. So, so it's the, it's that weird kind of thing that, that sort of conundrum that I, I, I don't know. I still have a hard time parsing because alienation seems to be sort of at the root of, of this whole project mm-hmm. it, it, that I, I keep jumping ahead to turn 10 turn Abbey because 10 turn Abbey, I think lays out the project and lays out the whole romantic project in such a clear way. It's sort of like, well, once you know that you go back and look at everything and like, Oh, this all makes total sense. But what is the, the sort of overcoming of alienation in this poem? Hmm. It would seem to be the moment where he, he blesses everything unaware. Yeah. All right. right. So the, the, there are two moments. Uh, first, he tries to pray. This is uh, exactly where you were pointing out that that wonderful line: "The many men so beautiful, and they all dead, all dead did lie, and a million million slimy things lived on, and so did I." Mm-hmm. I looked upon the rotting sea and drew my eyes away. I looked upon the eldritch deck, and there the dead men lay. I looked to heaven and tried to pray, but or ever a prayer had gushed, a wicked whisper came and made my heart as dry as dust. Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, I guess I've got too much Milton in me. Um, <laughs> too, too much goth Milton. Uh, anyway, but <laughs> the goth Puritan—that's a good—that's uh, a good brand. Uh, you lean into Jesus, that. Jesus, <laughs> yeah. I, I spent ten years in Boston, man. I don't know, but um, the the thing that that I always see sort of going on there, or, or it, it's it's resonant with Milton's anti-Catholic, anti-ritual stance, mm-hmm. right? Um, the moment that he can't pray is the moment that he tries to pray. The moment that you try to form it to the ritual or the moment that you try to be conscious about your connection to the divine is the moment that you will fail. Yeah. Because it's not sort of the natural overflow. Right. Remember, or, or the spontaneousness that that Adam and Eve had in the garden before they had fallen. Right. Well, actually, after they fall, yeah. they have that spontaneous moment where they, you know, try to speak to the divine and they really feel bad and really feel sorry and just say in the plainest possible words what their emotions are. Yeah. Um, there's a kind of self awareness in the act of praying. At that moment, yeah, that prevents him from being able to pray. Now, I, to my knowledge, Coleridge wasn't a Puritan. I, I don't know enough about his theological position. Mm-hmm. I believe at this point he was a Unitarian. Yeah, and uh, I, and I would leaning like Unitarian Puritanism as a distinct kind of. Uh, factional formation in English Protestantism had kind of it, it yes. kind of spent its force by the end of the 18th century and had become like well what's called the Congregationalists um, yeah. in the United States today I, I don't know enough about the religious history of the UK to know what would have happened with them there if they basically well I guess basically they would have been folded into Anglicanism by that successfully yeah. folded into Angl- Anglicanism and anyone who didn't like it had gone to the colonies you know Right. So I, I'm not exactly sure of his specific theological position. I am sure that he had one. Sure. He definitely has one later when he's, you know, arguing for the clerisy, uh, basically, um, an extra cabinet office of priests to guide the king into making sound theological judgments, uh, and sound parliamentary judgments as well. He goes full on theocratic craziness. But anyway, um, it doesn't strike me though that his earlier position seems cognate necessarily with something that um, Milton was was so into. And yet there are these points of contact with Paradise Lost, or I, I think I'm seeing points of contact with Paradise Lost that suggest a shared belief in unconscious prayer because 
what happens when he sort of finds redemption is he doesn't mean to, but he does praise. Beyond the shadow of the ship, I watched the water snakes. They moved in tracks of shining white. And when they reared, the elfish light fell off in hoary flakes. So they're, they're sort of like sparking in the moonlight. Yeah. Within the shadow of the ship, I watched their rich attire, blue, glossy green, and velvet black. They coiled and swam, and every track was a flash of golden fire. Oh, happy living things, no tongue their beauty might declare. A spring of love gushed from my heart, and I blessed them unaware. Mm. It's, it's the unawareness, it's the unconsciousness mm-hmm. uh, that allows him to have this be an actual prayer that allows for redemption. And he blesses those things which are other to him. Yes. He, he blesses the alien. He finds beauty and awe and love and acceptance and cherishing for the thing that is not him. Yes. So it's that acceptance of the other and the otherness of the world around him, which leads to the redemption and the lack of alienation and the rehabilitation, mm. right? To, to some degree. Yeah. But the rehabilitation takes the form of being compelled to go from town to town, person to person, locale to locale, spot that one dude and say, hey, listen, <laughs> right? You have the look of somebody who could use a, a terrifying, a tale of a terrifying ordeal to sink into your soul. Yeah. <laughs> you seem like a guy who needs his shit shook up. So, like, that's sort of, you know, that's this weird moment of things but it's it's that sort of forgetfulness of alienation or or that that sort of acceptance of the other or or not seeing the other as other anymore yeah well that's the which that's the reconciliation of the divine to the profane in christ right exactly i mean there it is yeah yeah. So, I mean, you know, Wordsworth at this point in his career is going to get off the boat. I mean, <laughs> Wordsworth goes in Tintern Abbey, he goes full on pantheist. Yeah. Um, and this, I think, is Coleridge. This always strikes me as Coleridge sort of saying pantheist, but let's rein it in. Sure. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's Christianize the pantheist. Well, it's, it's pantheist in a sense. Yeah. Like we can have your holistic oneness, but Jesus. Right. 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 Yeah. It's the, well, the yeah. holistic, and the, indeed the one, the holistic oneness is that argument for Jesus, right? It's like yeah. you can't extend yourself to extend blessings to these completely alien creatures that aren't even aware of you. Uh, yeah. and it, and it, it, you know, it is in such an act of recognition of universality, a kind of pantheistic impulse that you discover the reason and purpose for the incarnation. So yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. This, this but, problem's easy. We got, we figured it out, <laughs> <laughs> but it still needs like, there's something, but there's something in courage that, that, that is really, it's, it's something I find he's often threatened by his own his how do i put this all right he does something very very similar in kubla khan kubla khan yeah his other um, most famous you know. poem really yeah that's that's the other one if you were yeah. if you if, if you were reading assigned poetry in high school the two you would have read from samuel coleridge are rhyme of the ancient mariner or uh kubla khan yeah yeah in xanadu de kubla khan a saintly pleasure dome decree uh, where Alf the Sacred River ran through measures cavern through caverns of measureless demand down to us on the sea. So twice five, twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, so on and so forth. Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, I've taught that one a million times. Uh, but in, in Kublai Khan, it, it's all about this godlike figure who can, you know, in Xanadu de Kublai Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. Uh, he is Kublai Khan uh, does what God does. He says it and it is, uh-huh. you know, right. Um, in the beginning was the word or, or yeah, sorry. Uh, God says it and it is mm-hmm. right. Um, Kublai Khan can do that. And Coleridge at the end of the poem, or this Coleridge speaker at the end of the poem says, uh, a damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing about Amora, uh, Mount Abora. And he basically says, I had the muse once, and if I could, and I was interrupted, and if I could get it back, I would be the warrior god king that was Kublai Khan. Yeah. But my man, 
if you got it back and became the warrior god king that was Kublai Khan, you would be a heretic. Yeah. Because that you are attempting to take God's place. There's something threatening about Coleridge's own poetic ability in a certain way. And he has to pull it back. Right. And so in, in, this is going somewhere <laughs> in, um, ancient Mariner, he still needs to be sanctified. The, the ancient Mariner still needs to be sanctified by the old holy hermit. There's, there's this weird way, like why have the, okay, it's a great creepy, I mean, not creepy, but it's a great weird detail, you know, rowing out to save him from the shipwreck and the only survivor of the shipwreck and it creates this giant suction down. It's kind of like the end of Moby Dick, but, um, you know, it's this great weird detail, but why do we need the hermit of the wood? We need Mm -hmm. the hermit of the wood to bless him, to sanctify him. Yeah. So it needs some kind of ratification, right? right? Even if it is this weird from and it's ratification, and it's ratification from an ascetic, right? It's ratification yes. from another individual who has undergone unusual privations uh, in in yeah. that circumstance of of their own volition. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's something about courage that that at least strikes me as as seeming to need external validation for the the supernatural message or the theological message or or whatever this is like wordsworth at this stage of the game is just gonna be like yeah fuck it yeah (laughs) Uh, i heard the divine and it's just uh the oneness of all things man just (laughs) drop (laughs) drop whatever you got in your hands and uh you know come join me behind the bus and you know life is good but um yeah, Coleridge still needs some kind of structure there, but what a damn weird poem. I mean, we're, we're still trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I, does that do some kind of justice to this, at least for tonight? I think, I think so. I think like, and I hope our, our listeners recognize that like it's well worth your while to go and read it. Um, I would recommend that 1798 version. There's a cool, um, I found it's on a website called, uh, Prospero's Isle, a nice little, uh, (laughs) Shakespearean allusion there. Um, but if you just do like a Google search for lyrical ballads, 1798, uh, edition, it it should show up, but it's, uh, on the Prospero's Isle website. They have this terrific side by side version of the original text versus the uh, revised like 1820 or whatever uh, version. That is the one that would be, would have been in your Norton anthology that, that you read in high school. And I would really recommend um, kind of looking at them side by side, like, you know, paying attention to the 1798 one. That's the one that you're actually reading, but it's very <laughs> interesting. And I, I would think if we had a little more time, which I'm, you know, I'm I'm perfectly happy with the time we have spent on it, but it would be it would be an interesting exercise to kind of go through and see what the changes that were made, how those inflect this interpretation we've managed to cobble together, right? Like, yeah, uh, you know. Uh, but in any case, um, yeah, and, and I guess we can close uh, by talking a little bit about that publication history. Oh, sure. He he revised it for for the second edition and and toned down a lot of the archaisms. Yeah. And toned down some of the rugged meter. And then later on, he even added his own annotations to explain exactly what he means. So it's sort of like even with the annotations <laughs> and, you know, I've got the annotations in another uh, edition. Um, I think it's in my Norton Courage um, checking my bookshelf. Even with the annotations, it's still like – but wait a minute. Why? Yeah. <laughs> what is going on here? Yeah. It's still a, a, a pretty rugged text. It's, it's a pretty meaty, chewy one. And yeah, I really would urge everyone to, to just, if you've got, if English is your first language or if you've got enough English, go play with this yeah. because it, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a, it's a, fun a it's a fun one. It's a weird one. Um, and you're right. It's, it's, it's compelling, you know, it's just, it's a really, you know, I don't want to say earworm kind of, <laughs> but, but the actual like rhythm and language is really compelling and you read it. And then there are these really satisfying sequences of sounds that you can make in English yeah. that are in there. Um, but as, as we've kind of gone on and on, it's also uh, a, a weird puzzle box in, uh, in a very yeah. strange way. Yeah. 
So the next section of poems that we're going to move into are kind of the opposite of this. Mm. Uh, a, a huge chunk of lyrical ballads is either shorter sort of ballad poems about nature or uh, somewhat naturalistic dialogues or monologues mm-hmm. of pretty simple country life. So get geared up for that section <laughs> and we'll, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Yeah, sounds good, man. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.